Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley, and we begin with breaking news from two locations. North Korea has just launched another suspected ballistic missile. We'll have more on all the details on that in just a moment's time. But first, to Pakistan. The former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been shot and injured. His party says an unidentified gunman opened fire at a rally, hitting his foot. They're calling it an assassination attempt. This video was released in just the past few minutes, showing Khan being helped into a car. Let's go straight now to Safiya Saifi, who's in Islamabad Forest. Safiya, what more do we know about his health and who else perhaps was injured in this attack too? Julia, we know that this happened in the town of Gujranwala. We know that Imran Khan has been shot in the foot. Uh, He's been taken directly uh, to the main city of Lahore, one of the largest cities uh, in the country, which is close to Gujranwala. Uh, We also know by members of his party, the PTI, that there has been one death. One person has died uh, in the shooting that took place uh, on his convoy. Uh, We've seen images of uh, Senator Faisal Javed, who is a close uh, associate of Imran Khan, who usually travels with him uh, on these rallies. He's been shot in the face. Uh, he's asked for people to pray for him, but we've also uh, been told that the Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, the PTI, Imran Khan's party, has put out a statement that this was an assassination uh, attempt against Imran Khan, and we're already seeing very charged speeches and visuals coming out right off the back of this uh, attack on uh, the convoy that was moving uh, in the province of Punjab towards the capital city of Islamabad. Khan launched uh, this uh, rally, this long march, about a week ago calling for early elections and he had said that he fears for his life. And we've seen Fawad Chaudhry former information minister, senior party leader uh, of the PTI, making very charged statements that while their party is a party of peace, that there will be revenge for this. Uh, The blood of their workers has flowed. uh, The blood of their leader has flowed. And it's a very politically charged atmosphere in this country, which is already very polarized because of the various uh, political developments that have taken place here in Pakistan over the past couple of months. Uh, We're waiting for the interior minister to start a press conference uh, to explain who was behind attack, what actually unfolded. There have been visuals that have been splashed across all local channels. We're just trying to figure out what's actually happened. But there is without a doubt uh, the fact that the convoy of Imran Khan, a hugely immensely popular politician and former cricket player here in, in this country, his convoy has been attacked and one person is dead with at least three others injured apart from Imran Khan. Julia? 
Sophia, it's interesting, and, and you mentioned it, and it's not just Imran Khan himself, but those around him who've been concerned about threats to his life. And ever since he was ousted as prime minister, he's been increasingly vocal against the incumbent government. I just wonder, when we're looking at these images, what security does he have? What security around him? And, and how has that changed since he was prime minister, particularly in light of, of the threats to his life? And they've been ongoing. Well, Julia, every time we've had press, uh, you know, press conferences with Imran Khan, press briefings with Imran Khan, uh, we've been told by Khan and we've known security detail uh, that travels with him, a private security detail. Uh, the attack also took place in the province of Punjab, where Imran Khan's party holds the provincial government. He has again said that he has enough security from the present government in the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, the government itself had said that he is leading a bloody march. Uh, he, this past week, for example, uh, in Pakistan has been highly polarized. It's almost like a microcosm uh, of what's been happening in the past couple of months. We had a senior journalist who had been critical of the establishment, who was mysteriously killed, uh, assassin, well, killed uh, by gunshot uh, in Kenya. We had the director general of the intelligence services, Pakistan's who doesn't even like to be photographed making a press conference appearance and for the first time in Pakistan's history countering Imran Khan's narrative military against the current government uh, there has been a complete uh, battle uh, it's been an embattled situation with Imran Khan calling for early elections he said and we I spoke to him uh, just last month in a briefing and I asked him that for example in May uh, Imran Khan's rallies which gathered thousands of his supporters uh, there was a clash uh, in May uh, where many of his supporters were tear gas and had to stop uh, their protests against the current government. Imran Khan has said that he wants early elections and also said that he'd feared for his life. So going back to what you just asked about his security, the prime minister has released a statement saying that, you know, he condemns the attack and there will be a problem into this. But Imran Khan had already said in the days and weeks leading up to this exact long march towards the capital that he did fear uh, for his life. Julia? Sophia, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this breaking news story. Sophia Saifi there in Islamabad. And we will continue to bring you up to date with any more developments as we hear them. For more, now let's move on to other breaking news. Into CNN, in just the last few minutes, North Korea has launched another suspected ballistic missile. That's according to the Japanese Prime Minister's Office. It's the latest in a series of several very recent launches. And of course, it comes as South Korea's defense minister is at the Pentagon right now to meet his U.S. counterpart. Will Ripley is in Seoul for us. Will, what more do we know about this latest launch? So we're still waiting to learn the trajectory, the type of suspected ballistic missile. We believe it has already splashed down in the waters off the Korean Peninsula based on a statement that just came in a couple of minutes ago from the South Korean Defense Ministry. But uh, the Japanese uh, government has not specified whether the missile was still in the air or whether it's come down yet. Uh, but they did say ballistic missile, which means that's yet another violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Of course, it was in the morning hours here on the Korean Peninsula, local time, uh, that uh, North 
North Korea uh, launched what is suspected to be their most powerful missile, the Hwasong-17 Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. This is a missile that they successfully tested back in March, and I believe we have a comparison of how high it went back in March, where it rocketed up into space and uh, reached a record altitude, the highest altitude of any North Korean missile uh, ever before, uh, some 6,200 kilometers. This time, though, they believe the missile failed after the second stage, and it only reached an altitude of about 2,000 kilometers, less than a third of that record set in March. So a failed ICBM launch is actually still very valuable for North Korean uh, rocket scientists because they can learn a lot from a failure. Perhaps they learn more from a failure than they do from a success. Uh, and this uh, this Hwasong-17 was on a trajectory that would have taken it over Japan. In fact, the air raid sirens were going off in parts of Japan, the parts where the missile was expected to fly over before it suddenly vanished from radar uh, over the waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. And so uh, yet another highly provocative attempted launch, even though it didn't make the full trajectory, the intent was certainly there. And that is part of the reason why you have this decision from the United States and South Korea. And I'm going to read you a portion of the statement put out by South Korea's Air Force explaining their decision to extend indefinitely these uh, very large military exercises known as Vigilant Storm, involving some 240 warplanes and thousands of uh, military personnel from the United States and South Korea. Uh, they say in this statement, quote, it was necessary to demonstrate a solid combined defense posture of the bilateral alliance under the current security crisis heightened by North Korea's provocations. Now, North Korea has been quick to respond uh, within the last couple of hours, Julia, uh, saying that the decision to extend Vigilant Storm uh, is, quote, very dangerous and a wrong decision. And North Korea had previously promised uh, even more powerful uh, countermeasures and responses uh, if these military exercises continued. Now, these were pre-scheduled, not the extension, of course. This is something that's new, something that we really haven't seen. Uh, but we have a new, very hawkish South Korean president, President Yoon, uh, who, unlike his predecessor, President Moon, who was always trying to defuse the situation and make peace with the North, President Yoon is all about showing force. And so the fact that these military drills are now going to continue uh, could potentially escalate situate the situation here on the peninsula even further. Now, in the unprecedented blitz of uh, 26, more than two dozen missiles launched by North Korea yesterday, they, they included both ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. So I want to explain for you quickly the difference because there are crucial differences. Ballistic missiles are banned by the United Nations Security Council because they essentially use rockets to propel into space. They travel at multiple times the speed of sound. They go back uh, into the earth uh, using a reentry vehicle and they basically descend using gravity to hit their target, and they travel at multiple times the speed of sound. Uh, this is incredibly dangerous, very difficult to shoot down, and potentially can carry, uh, this Hwasong-17 that was tested could potentially carry multiple nuclear warheads in it. Uh, and so it's a very dangerous weapon, theoretically capable of delivering a warhead to the mainland U.S., although North Korea has never actually proven that they have a weapon that, it, that could actually do that uh, in the field of battle. Uh, now, a cruise missile, it goes slower, it's smaller, it has a smaller payload, because it stays within the Earth's atmosphere and it operates much like a jet, uh, like an airliner or an airplane. It has a jet engine that is maneuverable, uh, but it does stay inside uh, the atmosphere, which makes it easier to shoot down. Uh, so cruise missiles are not banned by the UN Security Council, and North Korea has been launching a combination of those. Cruise missiles, uh, you know, could potentially be used as, to carry small warheads as well, Julia, these tactical nuclear weapons uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia is talking so much about. Uh, truly a, a dramatic escalation here on the peninsula, a very fast-moving situation.
certainly a lot for U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the South Korean uh, Secretary of Defense Lee Jong-sup to be talking about at the Pentagon. And we'll be listening very closely when they hold their press conference in the coming hours, Julia. We certainly will, Will. And as you said, a clear violation of multiple UN Security Council resolutions. Um, I think the, the ultimate question here is, what are the consequences for that? What is their worth in light of um, these developments? Well, great to have you with us. Thank you. And thank you. It's a very good question, Julia. Sorry, I just wanted I think that's a really important question because of China and Russia. Uh, They are the ones that could enforce these these sanctions that the United States keeps talking about. Uh, The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas Greenfield, says that they're going to try to put pressure on China and Russia to do more to improve and enhance sanctions. But I can tell you, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping appear to be in no mood to cooperate with the West on punishing Pyongyang. So essentially, this has allowed Kim Jong-un to feel that he can continue to do this unabated. Yeah monopolizing the moment. Will Ripley, once again, thank you. And uh, yes, thank you. (laughs) Okay, let's turn it back now to the rest of today's news. In its case of doves denied, hawks preside over at the Fed. The Fed announcing another three quarters of a percent rate hike Wednesday. Fed Chair Jay Powell saying the severity of the central bank rate hikes could now slow, but that the Fed is far from done yet. I think one look at the inflation rate in the United States can tell you that without asking. Powell arguing, however, that the fixation on the size of hikes is misplaced, emphasising it's all about the destination and where rates ultimately end up. The question of, of when to moderate the pace of increases is now much less important than the question of how high to raise rates and how, how long to keep monetary policy restricted, which really will be our principal focus. In other words, next month's rate hike may be less severe than the mega three quarters of percent moves we've seen over the past four months. But the Fed looks set to tighten well into next year. Wall Street remains Fed fearing, I think. Wednesday saw steep losses for all of the major averages. Futures losing ground pre-market once again and European markets in the red too. You can see there it's a sea of red, really. UK stocks also in the red after the Bank of England's eighth straight rate hike. The U.S. dollar, meanwhile, stronger. Higher rates will mean more dollar demand from overseas and domestically and higher prices for commodities like fuel and food, putting further pressure on some emerging market nations that import these. We'll discuss that and the upcoming COP27 climate summit with World Bank President David Malpass very shortly. In the meantime, let's get more on the Fed. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to see you. I think where Jay Powell is concerned, the messages assume nothing, particularly when the inflation rate remains at, what, 8.2 percent in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, the, the Fed, a ways to go, he said, right? The mm. Fed still has a ways to go to get this uh, under control. And I think we've had such big jumbo rate hikes so far, six rate hikes in a row. Four of them have been just humongous. At this point, I think they're really going to be looking to see how those are, are working in, in the economy. Uh, there's some discussion, some concern that uh, maybe the, these rate hikes are going to continue well into next year, but could begin to slow a little bit. He says we're not even close to talking about a pause, but at some point there could be some smaller albeit still large, 50 basis point uh, rate hikes here. I think the markets are seeing, you know, the writing's on the wall. Inflation is still too high. The Fed still has to keep putting the brakes on the economy. And he was obviously asked a question as well in the press conference about recession risk, as you and I are continually asked, I know. And he said that it's still possible to see a soft landing, but the, the window for it's narrowed. What's also fascinating to me is CNN's polling, which suggests that the vast majority of Americans already think the economy's in recession. You can talk us through that, but it's pretty devastating for Joe Biden heading into the midterms. That mentality. 
I'm talking about. And it, that mentality be, starts to become self-fulfilling, too, right? I mean, uh, look, Republicans overwhelmingly think the U.S. is already in a recession. Independents, you know, th- almost three quarters, Democrats, 61 percent. But other polling shows us the most significant political polling we have shows us that the, it is the economy that is issue number one just days into this um into this midterm election. And we can, you know, say to a blue in the face that, you know, consumer finances are in much better shape today than they were in 2008. And the job market still remains uh, robust here. And, and um, you know, the housing market is, is, is softening, really softening, um, but coming from just an unsustainable level. But people paying more for groceries, they're still paying more for gasoline than they did a year ago. And those are just these steady drags on sentiment that are um, a real political factor here, uh, no question. A lot of people think there will be a recession. No one knows for sure. As you know, you and I say this all the time. It, maybe we muddled through one. Maybe there's one sometime next year. Maybe there's some exogenous shock you know, related to Russia that we can't even predict here. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know people don't feel great about the economy. And that is um, that is big part of the mood here. Yeah, that's what matters. Christine Romans, thank you, yep. as always. And across the Atlantic, the Bank of England has just raised interest rates to the highest level since 2008. The UK interest rate now stands at 3% after an increase of three quarters of a percent earlier today. Mark Stewart is here to crunch all the numbers for us. And I think the numbers that we really were worrying about here is, is the depth of recession and how high the unemployment rate might go in the Bank of England's mind. Mark, walk us through this. No question, Julia. In fact, kind of a bleak assessment about where Mm. things stand right now from the governor of the Bank of England, uh, Andrew Bailey. Uh, Let's look at some of the numbers. First of all, uh, with inflation at a point of more than 10 percent, Bailey felt there really was no choice but to increase interest rates again. And more rates are likely he cannot rule them out, but perhaps at a smaller increment. But then there is this bigger economic picture, uh, a narrative that complements these numbers. Uh, First of all, bank leaders feel that economic growth looking forward will either be flat or could even fall. And on this topic of recession, which you just talked about with Christine, In a report just released, uh, the feeling from the Bank of England is that the UK economy is expected to remain in a recession uh, throughout 2023 and into 2024, with GDP expected to recover only gradually thereafter. Now, as far as what is contributing to this economic slump, no real surprise. Obviously, the interest rate hikes are going to have some kind of an impact. But then there's also the war in Ukraine, whose impact still cannot be discussed especially when it comes to fuel prices and when it comes to food costs. And that is something that came up over and over again in the Bank of England briefing. If we look ahead, though, November 17th is a day that I'm sure you have circled on your calendar. That is when the new administration, the Rishi Sunak administration, will basically uh, unveil the government's budget announcement that will look at spending plans, tax plans and 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 how things will move forward. Uh, and that will influence what happens to inflation. And that, Julia, will likely have a big role in what the Bank of England decides to do next. Yes. And the alarm bells are ringing on your phone, too. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for that. We'll have more after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. A successful global transition to greener energies relies on huge progress for emerging markets since they will contribute the vast proportion of electricity demand growth over the next two decades. 
The good news is that while Bank believes emissions in developing countries can be reduced by as much as 70 percent by 2050 by investing just, and I say just, an average of 1.4 percent of GDP each year. Now it comes as the World Bank says it itself has increased climate-related financing to almost $32 billion this year. That's more than 35 percent, by the way, of its total investments. And it also comes on the eve of COP27, the UN Climate Change Conference beginning this Sunday in Egypt. Much to discuss, as always. And joining us now is David Malpass. He's the president of the World Bank. David, always great to have you on the show. I want to talk about that required investment in terms of GDP to dramatically reduce carbon emissions in emerging markets. I mean, it's a huge dent for a relatively small investment, but it's an insurmountable cost if you don't have the resources. David, talk us through this. That's right. For some of the poorer countries, it's a much bigger share of GDP. And that brings in the whole world effort that's needed for this. Uh, what, what we're doing from the World Bank is trying to emphasize that action is needed and also impact. That means prioritizing, helping the countries find a priority way for their taking action. Uh, China is, a, of course, a, a major part of this uh, uh, developing world uh, change that's needed because they have so many new coal-fired power plants coming on stream. So that will be one of the key variables in how this goes. But the the uh, the report that we are just put out is the summation of a uh, year-long effort to do detailed diagnostics for countries to see what pathways, how they can achieve resilience and development at the same time. I mean, I had a scan through the report and it does cover 20, I believe, of, um, of some of these emerging and, and developing nations in particular. And to your point, for some of the most vulnerable and the lower income, and they tend to combine, the, the cost that we're talking about here is around 5% of GDP. Um, to your point, they're not doing this even with the private sector, with their governments alone. There has to be involvement from, from the international community. And, and, and China is one of those that plays a role in terms of emission output, but also potential investment. Too. David, is it possible to get everybody together? I know this is part, at least, of the message that you're going to take to COP27. Uh, I think it's possible to do that. Uh, but right now, uh, it, many of the countries are looking only at themselves. So right. one of the one of the goals is to bring people together that they that that there needs to be the agreement that impact is vital uh, and that changes in actual greenhouse gas emissions reductions are the, are the goal from the from the climate change standpoint for a lot of countries you know we're heavily involved in adaptation helping the poor countries prepare for the changes going on in their climates uh, and and that means uh, working with the government's budgets and providing more money. But uh, in many cases, the countries have to tr make trade-offs between their own budgets for poverty alleviation, for health care, for education, and for adaptation to climate change. So it's a big strain. Uh, one of, and Julia, I'll, I'll mention, and we've talked about this before, is the debt reduction efforts that uh, right. I think are vital uh, in, in getting more resources for the countries. Yeah, debt reduction and also finding a balance between what's provided in terms of loans 
that have to be repaid, even if it's a long time in the future, versus grants perhaps that don't, particularly if it's a, a global effort to improve and reduce our, our carbon emissions, because everybody benefits from that. There are positive externalities. Are we getting that balance right too? Uh, frankly, no. Uh, and mm. with interest rates going up and bond yields going up, that's a, that's a double challenge for those countries that borrow money. We make uh, World Bank uh, provides grants for many countries. Uh, that's a that's a chunk of the uh, of the activity of the World Bank. So that helps, uh, and we can also buy down some of the interest rates, so it's not so expensive. Uh, but that becomes a bigger and bigger challenge given the global inflation that uh, that countries are suffering. For many of the countries, their currencies are weakening. So what it means is that even though uh, even though they're, they're, uh, uh, some of the some of the high prices are coming are beginning to relent uh, a little bit, they don't feel that yet because their currencies have weakened, and so that's that's a big challenge. This is so important, David, and, and you highlighted this in the World Bank's commodity market report. And I just want to emphasize what you said because it it sort of came up in discussion inadvertently with um, Russia suspending and then re-entering participation in the Black Sea grain agreement to export. Uh, grains out of Ukraine. And the suggestion was perhaps from, at least on Russia's part, that they, uh, the, the grain wasn't reaching the poorer nations. And your point's vital because it's whether or not they can pay. Because even if we see some of the prices for, for fuel and, and grains come down, in domestic currency terms, given the strength of the dollar, actually, they may not see any price decrease at all. In fact, it could rise. What, how do we tackle that? Is it about more supplies of, of fuel and grain or is it about a wholesale look at the strength of the U.S. dollar, perhaps? Uh, more supply would help a lot. I think ending Russia, ending the war in Ukraine would be the, the biggest single step. Uh, you know what happened when they when they really whipsawed markets last week? The wheat prices went up. And then they came down after Russia relented. So that shows you some potential for progress if there were peace, which I, I hope there could be. Uh, as far as the countries themselves, then the, you know, the strains are relatively new. Uh, 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 the, the, the poor countries have been, on, of course, under strain for years, uh, but the, the uh, Russian invasion uh, made that much worse. Uh, and so we're still learning to deal, help to, trying to find ways to help them country by country. Uh, early on in April or so, we put money into Lebanon, which was severely hit by the by the cutoff from the Black Sea. Uh, Egypt is uh, has had a devaluation, uh, and we we have a, a program there. And on around the world, these are all specific major problems for the governments of the developing countries, and that's what we're working on. And I'll mention again, debt relief uh, is is one of the biggest because the their the uh, debt service burden for the countries outweighs all of the foreign aid that can be put in. Yeah. I mean, David, it comes at a time too, and, and you and I talked about this the last time you were on, where I think the UK has now joined uh, the United States and Germany in saying, um, we need to look at what the World Bank is doing or the World Bank Group is doing in terms of their money. And they're calling for some degree of fundamental reform. You can define what you think perhaps they mean in that, because I'm not sure what anybody means. But I can I can look at the numbers and you've provided a record amount of financing for, for climate initiatives, for transition finance. I mentioned it in the introduction. Do you think some part of that reform involves taking it from climate focus from 35% of the funding to 50, 
65. Is that in your mind and perhaps their mind how you convince them that the World Bank is a leader? Because that's what they're saying they want. David, how do you become perceived as a leader in, in tackling climate change? Thanks. I, I, I think the, the bank and the bank staff are doing that in fora around the world. Uh, every conference, the World Bank is featured and leading the efforts. And so I'm happy with that. We're coming out with a new initiative or a, a really a reinforced part of our 20 year initiative on methane reduction because it's one of the most potent uh, greenhouse gases. We're coming out at COP27, which is coming up uh, with a major new trust fund called SCALE that will allow the world to put additional resources into countries that are needed and into regional programs, uh, into global programs that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I think we're, we're well positioned for that. And what the shareholders are saying, and I've embraced it, uh, is more is needed from including from the World Bank, major amounts more. Uh, and that and so we are uh, looking at all the various avenues uh, through which that can be done, uh, th that can be through more contributions from the major shareholders. That's one that can be through more, more uh, uh, efficient use of existing World Bank resources. And we're looking at all of those avenues. Um, and the, But the bottom line is going to be that still won't be enough. So let's do all that we can uh, and then also find major new mechanisms for the global community to put money into green, uh, to, glo uh, to global public goods. If you mm. think about carbon dioxide reduction for poorer countries, they look at it and say, why should the burden be on us? So that, uh, the world needs to be sensitive to that and then have major programs. Many of them can be World Bank programs to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, including in the developing world and especially in China and India, which are two of the major emitters. Yeah, I think the um, probably what the, the most important word there was more, David. And, um, and just so that everybody's clear who's listening to this, your message is we are going to do more and you are fully on board with that. Uh, that, that's right. And, and, and we, we have a, a, you know, a, gr a great team working really hard to maximize the, the, uh, the impact. So one of the key things uh, in, in achieving what the shareholders want uh, is to get the most out of the money that's put in. You mentioned the targets. There hasn't really been a move uh, within our shareholders to say that we should take away from uh, from child nutrition, for example, uh, what they what they want to do, and rightly so, is have more impact on climate. And so that's really the 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 big part of our focus. Yeah, I mean, all of these things, food security, sustainability, um, nutrition in particular, and better nutrition, they are all fundamentally tied, David, as well. So it's um it's sort of a matter of categorization in it sometimes in some points too. Um, I know you're off to South Africa. I've run out of time because I talk too much to talk to you, but um, that, of course, one of the uh, most coal dependent nations in the world. And I know you're transitioning a, a coal plant there to solar. We, Come we back are, and talk to me. We are Come closing, we are closing a coal fired power plant. I know. So that's a, that's a big achievement. Yes. And, you, and transitioning to solar too. Um, come back, please. Um, and good luck at COP27 and talk to us um, specifically about South Africa, because the energy crisis there is, um, is fundamental too. David, always a pleasure. Thank you. David Malpass, president much. of the World Bank. Thank you. We've got more after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back. And an update on our breaking news from Pakistan. A suspect is in custody after an assassination attempt on former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Police say the male suspect had a pistol and two empty magazines when he was arrested. The shooting happened at a political rally. One person was killed in the shooting. Five were injured, including Imran Khan. If we get any further news or developments on that, we will bring them straight to you. For now, let's take a look at what's happening in U.S. market price action. And stocks are up and running and extending the sharp losses we saw in Wednesday's session following Fed Chair Jerome Powell's hawkish message on rates. Powell saying the Federal Reserve will continue raising borrowing costs even if the severity and size of the moves at these individual meetings slows down over time. What's key, of course, here is the Fed is still unclear over just how high rates will have to go if inflation persists. And all this will create more uncertainty for financial market investors and consumers, of course, too. It also means investors and the Federal Reserve will be laser focused on future data, which will start coming in fast and furious beginning with tomorrow's big U.S. jobs report. And of course, we have fresh U.S. inflation data out next week, too. Now, it's been more than two years since the start of the pandemic. Remote working has revolutionized the way many companies still operate. That's something the appropriately named remote wants to keep capitalizing on. It helps firms of all sizes manage remote talent all around the world, directly handling issues like payroll taxes and compliance in more than 60 different countries. And voila, that very impressive entrepreneur joins us now. He's Remote's CEO, Jop van der Voort. Jop, fantastic to have you with us. Now, we lost a bit of time because what we were going to do was introduce you with the royal recommendation that I know you got and how we were originally introduced <laughs> and our regular viewers will know that. Um, so congratulations on that front. Um, just explain Thank your you. mission because it's about, I think, simplifying the process of hiring talent wherever they are in the world. Yeah, exactly. We very much believe that talent is everywhere, but opportunity isn't yet. And so we want to bridge that gap and make it possible to for any company anywhere to hire any individual anywhere. And so that's exactly what we do. OK, so talk to me about how the process actually works, because for most people, I think we have to be careful about confusing working from home versus what you perceive to be remote work. And I think the challenges of, of finding that talent and automating, I think, many of the processes, the, the payroll, the visas, whatever it is, in order to actually get those people working for a business. So talk to me about what makes you unique in this regard. Yeah. So if you want to hire, let's say you're an American organization, you want to hire someone in another country, let's say here in the Netherlands. Normally, what you would do is you would have to operate as a Dutch company and figure out how to run payroll and taxes and everything else here. And so what we did is we set up operations in most countries around the world and we do that for you. So you come to us, you say, this is Jane. I want to hire her. She lives in the Netherlands. And then we take care of everything that is necessary for you to be able to hire her. Uh, and we do that with, you know, blood, sweat and tears first and now more and more software and automation. I mean, you also offer for contractors, I know, that, that work for you, they can receive currency payments in a whole host of different currencies. So wherever they are deciding to remote in from, they can be paid. I know your U.S. users as well can be paid in uh, cryptocurrencies, I believe, as well. Does anyone actually take cryptocurrency anymore? 
Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. You know, it, it really depends on the circumstances of the individual. We see that a small percentage of people actually like to be paid in crypto. I think mm. the more interesting thing is is that we see a lot of people in countries with extremely high inflation, which you know more and more countries are. They choose to receive a different currency than their local currency, for example, yes. U.S. dollar, even though they might be in Latin America. Oh, so that's really interesting. So, so workers actually choosing to be paid in US dollars and taking the currency risk because they think that the dollar is going to strengthen relative to perhaps wherever they are in the world. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Talk to me about your growth, because you are seeing astonishing levels of growth. Yeah, you know, we, we founded a company in 2019 and for the first year we were just built, setting up the company and the company didn't grow very much. But then a pandemic happened. Everybody started working remotely. We are remote.com. So uh, <laughs> we, 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 had to, we had to grow to meet that demand. And so we went in, in about a year from, I would say, 50 to about 1,000 employees, uh, which was quite, quite a journey. <laughs> of course. I mean, I was barely able to keep up. OK, so yeah. fast forward to today and Elon Musk is potentially, we're confused about what he's going to do in terms of the size of workforce, but he is saying to everybody else, you need to be in the building. What does a sort of post-pandemic environment, and I know it's different around the globe, mean for remote in your view? Yeah. The beautiful thing that we're seeing is that the leverage that employers used to have, which is, you know, if you work for me, you come to my office. And if right. you don't live close to me, you want to work for me, you move to me. That has changed completely. And so what happens now is that individuals that say, well, I don't want to work from an office. Then there are now thousands and thousands of employees that say, well, you can work remotely for me. You don't have to work for that employer anymore. And so that leverage, the change in leverage has completely changed the global hiring market. And we see that you know, great employers are saying, well, you can work remotely for us and they will attract the best talent. And then if you really do want to work for a Twitter or some other organization, yeah, you'll have to work from, from an office. But the moment that you move out of wherever they are located, now there's thousands of alternative employers that also pay well, that also have great work, that also allow you to grow in your career. It sort of works in a strong jobs environment. Does it work in a recessionary environment where some of that power that workers have today shifts back to the employer? You know, to nothing really changes because if you are an employer and you're struggling to hire people you will always have this option for you and like the cost of hiring remotely is less than the cost of working from an office mm. right because people work from wherever they live the cost of living might be lower plus you don't have to pay for an office and so even though we see more employers going through layoffs and to reduction in forces for example we also see a greater demand for remote work than ever ever before have about 10 seconds. Are you profitable? I know you're in growth phase, but are you profitable? <laughs> it's a choice you make as a business. And it's not the choice <laughs> for us Good to answer. make right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I have a million more questions for you. Come back and talk to us. Uh, forgive me because Ooh. I don't have enough time today because of breaking news, but um, we shall reconvene. Um, great to chat to you. Thank you for Thanks that. Thanks so much. Okay, just ahead on First Move, a call to earth. We cross the world for a special look at the wonders of our oceans. Our oceans cover more than 70% of the Earth's surface and the sea contains a diverse and vibrant ecosystem that's key to life on our planet, above or below the waves. 
Despite this, the oceans are under threat like never before, whether from overfishing, pollution or climate change. But all hope is not lost. Across the globe, men and women are fighting to prevent and even reverse the damage. Today, CNN is hosting its second annual Call to Earth Day, focusing on all of those efforts. From Beijing to Mexico, we have reporters covering the story all around the globe. And our David McKenzie is on Hot Bay Beach in Cape Town, South Africa, and he's with a charity that works with children to make sure everyone feels connected to the ocean. David, I'm assuming that means even cleaning up some of those beaches, and it looks beautiful behind you. It's a gorgeous beach. It's one of the most famous in Cape Town, Julia. And behind me, the Sentinel Ocean Alliance and their education program. You know, you came to me right at exactly the right time. They have children coming here uh, twice a week to do this kind of education. They aren't just cleaning up the plastic. They're taking notes, indicating what they are finding on this beach and why maybe it's dangerous for the uh, marine life in this area. This is at least an eight-week program. It's part of its education. Part of it is then learning to surf and to swim and to respect the ocean. Here in South Africa, particularly, and around the world, there is a sense that many communities don't benefit from the ocean. This is near a kind of millionaire's mile where very wealthy people live, and often uh, the communities that flank this bay don't feel part of this. I spoke to an ocean educator here who says it's important that everyone feels connected and learns about this great asset. So many people in this country haven't always had access to the ocean. Why is it important to introduce people to the ocean and explain what it's all about? To be honest, I'm one of those people that grew up not having access to the ocean. And I feel like it is important to give the kids of today or the youth of today access to the ocean because they need to understand how beautiful the oceans are, that the ocean can bring more to them. But there are people living in formal settlements who don't feel necessarily welcome here all the time. So why is it important to change that? So it's very important to change that because this is not only the ocean for a certain group of people, it's the ocean for all of us. And when the kids first arrive, compared to when they've spent a few months with you, what is the difference you see? Oh, we see a lot of difference. When the kids arrive, the first thing, when I ask them to pick up plastic that they see in the garden or somewhere, oh no, I'm not going to pick it up. It's not mine. Why should I be the one picking it up? Why is this one not picking it up? So we see that behavior because they're not, they, they, they're used to not picking up something that's not theirs. As, as long as it's not mine, I'm not going to pick it up. So you see a lot of behavioral change because now that they know the ocean, they understand the ocean, they're connected to the ocean, they see the value of, of protecting and, and saving it. What is the message you'd like to give? One piece of advice that I would like to give to the world is that, you know, we have to come to an understanding at some point that our oceans, you know, they give us life. We need to protect our oceans so that we can keep on living. Well, certainly the ocean gives us life and it's worth remembering, of course, that the ocean uh, systems are incredibly important for climate change, mitigating climate change. It absorbs heat. It also uh, is a massive carbon sink to help us combat what is a very real existential threat for our planet. But, you know, I grew up in this town, uh, this city. Uh, it's incredible to see these communities, these kids coming out on these extensive programs, learning to care for the oceans, to get rid of plastic, 
And really, you wish more people were this committed uh, to doing this kind of work. Julia? Yeah, what a magical place to grow up and how incredible to see them caring for something so beautiful and so vital too. And we don't talk about our oceans enough, to your point. David, thank you for that. David McKenzie there. Now from the coast of Cape Town now to the waters of South America and in Patagonia, delicate marine ecosystems thrive in glaciers and lakes. Scientists, of course, though, still have a lot to learn about what's out there and how human behavior is impacting life in the fords. Biologist and Rolex Awards laureate Vereni Hausman shows us just what's at stake. For me, Patagonia is the most beautiful part of Chile. It's a very remote, very wild and rugged coastline, full of green forests, temperate rainforest, has lots of glaciers, rivers, lakes, and the coast is very steep. The marine life came from deep waters, but also from adjacent areas. And so the diversity we find in fjords is elevated compared to other coastlines. My name is Freni Heusermann. I'm a scientist working at the University of San Sebastian, and I'm studying the marine biodiversity of Chile in Patagonia. Diving in Patagonia, we found many species that haven't been described before. The coastline is more than 100,000 kilometers, which is twice around the world. There are only a handful of scientists working there. So even if we studied all the main areas, there are still most parts that we don't know yet. Chile in Patagonia was free of human impact for a long time, but in the 80s when aquaculture moved in, it started to be impacted. Life in the fjords has been reduced in abundance. There are species we hardly don't find anymore. By impacting an area where we know very little about, we always have the risk that we are damaging ecosystems and the equilibrium of the ecosystems is lost. I hope that humanity understands the need of protect our planet. I hope humanity understands the need of protecting the oceans and our lives and the lives of all future generations depend on a healthy ocean and a healthy planet. And if you'd like to share your thoughts about raising awareness on environmental issues, you can head to our special page, cnn.com slash call to Earth Day. And finally, just to emphasize the point, another warning about just why we need to do more to protect our amazing planet. Researchers at UNESCO say that glaciers in one third of the planet's most beautiful parks and protected areas are set to disappear in our lifetime whether or not we slow global warming. The ice sheets of Yosemite and Yellowstone National Parks are among those at risk of vanishing too by 2050. The report says global warming needs to be limited, as we know, to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels if some of the Earth's other glaciers are to even stand a chance. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness 
providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.